Hello and welcome to Ranking Thrones, a podcast where I meet up with friends and special guests, along with my co-host Evan Camacho, to talk about the kings and queen who sat on the Iron Throne, the claimants, and we're going through the hands right now. But this is going to be another fun special episode, and I brought back our frequent guests, Stephen Atwell and Jim McGeehan, to talk about this real fun question of the the two major men who threatened the Iron Throne itself, Damon Blackfire and Robert Baratheon, and really do a bit of a comparison game of their rebellions and see why did one triumph and why did one fail? Um, a little bit of ground rule, not ground rules, but just um, background context. Um, I was thinking of including Rhaenyra Targaryen in this, but Rhaenyra is right there with Aegon the Uncrowned of having dragons on her side and the other side having dragons on their side. So it's kind of a bit of a whole different area when you get the Z-axis available for battles. But this is where there's no tactical advantage. It's just two brave, charismatic warrior figures challenging the Iron Throne. So just let's just dive into it. What, what are our opening thoughts about this? Um, so, you know, we were... Uh, think about a couple different factors. And I think one that would be good to start off with, because it's sort of the most obvious kind of political difference, is that in the case of the first Blackfire Rebellion, you have all of the great houses on the side of the, you know, the monarchy. And in Robert Baratheon, the great houses sort of split almost exactly 50-50. Um, so one of the big differences seems to be um, the not just the sort of political class of the nation dividing, but especially those at the top who can sort of uh, play the biggest role in terms of coordinating and consolidating uh, political support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Stephen. That is something that's hugely important. Um uh, th- there might be some areas in where that that that's not such a deal breaker for Damon, but going in, uh, you get not just two Lord Param two Lord Paramounts, but you have two wardens on Robert's side when it starts. You get the warden of the north in in Ned, and you have the warden of the east in John Aaron, and you got Robert, Lord of Storms End, but we do know because we have more details about Robert's rebellion that Robert being Lord of Storm's End did not automatically mean that the Stormlands pledged fealty to him and to his rebellion. And he had to fight to get their support. Well, pretty much every region had its disloyalists with the exception of the North. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, we don't hear about anything, but given the North's, I wouldn't say fanatical, but certainly almost religious uh, loyalty to House Stark uh, uh, really gave uh, Eddard kind of a just a, a unified hold on the uh, on the North, and I can imagine that inviting Rickard Stark down and then murdering him kind of you could be interpreted as violating guest right, and, well, and a, a bunch of other Northern lords too. Like the, yeah. I think one of the things that kind of made the North less divided is that the pain was really spread around. 
Yeah. Like there were many houses that could sort of say it's not just the Starks, it's all of us. Yeah, and I know. I mean, Ethan Glover was there too, and stuff like. I mean, I mean, he was incommunicado, so they probably thought that he was dead until they actually found him in the the dungeons of uh, <laughs> the Red Keep. But uh, but I mean, you had uh, you had a Gulltown Rebellion, so the the Vale wasn't unified. Uh, Hoster Tully had to take down. Uh, I think it was House Goodbrook, and, and the then. Op- and the dairies, uh, so they obviously, and then you had Robert's uh, little excursion at Summer Hall. So you really did see that there was divided loyalties in the rebel regions, with the exception of the north. But there was also divided loyalties on the um, on the the Targaryen side. Well, I wouldn't say yeah. divided loyalties so much as uh, Doran Martell, after uh, let's see, having his sister humiliated at the tourney of Heron Hall. Uh, yeah, uh, being uh, having his uh, nephew insulted. No, 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 not his nephew. His niece insulted when she was a newborn by saying that uh, she smelled yeah. she smelled gross and Dornish. Uh, yeah, so and his nephew potentially disinherited. Like we keep. Yeah, yeah. it's it's easy to forget that, but like Eris <laughs> kept on playing this game where yep. he was like threatening to eliminate the the line of of Rhaegar from the Iron Throne, which is just Yep. You know, that should be a bigger deal for the... Uh, the House, House Martell, yeah, it really should. House Martell, because it's like their whole, you know, reason for loyalty to House Targaryen is based much more on this kind of... Uh, uh, what's the right phrase that I'm looking... Like, transactional... Dynastic. Yeah, yeah. The, dynastic, the dynastic politics. And what's the point of a dynastic alliance if you just disinherit the, the very alliance partner <laughs> you have? Yeah, well, you, the, technically there are some blood relations between the two. It's but you know it's just like Baratheon and Targaryen of like yeah. there's blood affinity. But yeah, and there's Aaron blood in in House Targaryen as well. Or no, no, other way around. There's Targaryen yeah. blood no, in House Targaryen. There, there is Aaron blood in House Targaryen. So it's because... like I mean that that clearly didn't <laughs> didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So yeah, but but I think that's really important is is having two wardens, two wardens really being on this rebellion really gives something an edge to Robert because it really does legitimize his rebellion as more than just what, what, what which you can easily paint Damon's rebellion as is just, this is just pure ambition. This is just pure ambition. There is no legitimacy behind him because look, no lore, real legitimate Lords are, are behind him. It's just ambitious grasping Lords that are known for being ambitious and grasping. Yeah, I mean, we were sort of talking a little bit in the in the pre-show about sort of the lack of a threat that there there were a lot of lords who, you know, the the ones who had who, you know sought favor from uh, Aegon the Fourth who were like not happy with mm-hmm. Darren the Second's administration, but no one felt like existentially threatened. They didn't think that they were going to be hauled off. And executed without trial. They didn't think their lands were going to be taken. Um, now, I I think we don't want to get too deep into that because I think that's kind of the next area we could really talk about is just the kings that they that they were up against. Sure. And and kind of like the situation they're up against. I do want to say though, in Damon's case though, even though I was just saying like, as much as people can be dismissive uh, of that, you don't have these big big tentpole allies. And um, I am a little bit 
colored by Good Queen Alley's The True History of the Blackfire play, the greatest fanfic ever written. Although it's meant to be propaganda. Yes, yes. But it's that you, when you do get these ambitious, ambitious people, if you, um, it's also a little bit in the movie The Founder of just like, if you get people that are already rich and powerful, they're not going to be as, and that's what, what the Targaryens faced in Robert's Rebellion is you get Lord Tyrell just saying, I'm just going to siege, I'm just going to siege Storm's End and that's kind of all I'm going to do. So I can like legally say like, I'm very much in this rebellion. I'm very dedicated, but all he's doing is just laying down a long siege, not really risking anything too dire. And compare that to getting the peaks, getting all these secondary houses that really have long, these long andal grievances and just saying like, I want to be the Lord. I And what we saw with Eustace Osgrey in, in The Sworn Sword of just this, these diminished lords who have been diminished by time that just want to be on top. They've got that drive. They've got that passion. And I was... Something you said, actually, I was thinking the really interesting parallel is between Mace Tyrell and Walder Frey. It's like mm. neither of them kind of officially, yeah. you know, like desert. They just like, you know, they're going to make the sort of minimum token appearance. Oh, yes. Yep. Well, I mean, and it's it's based very much on history of just the, the real life. the. the <laughs> The family that the phrase are very much based on, the Stanleys, just these wonderfully awful opportunists and oh, fence. Oh, the perfidious Stanleys. Yeah. That's a descriptor. <laughs> uh, just Richard III. I'm going to kill your son if you don't send your su- support. Sire, I have more sons. You now this is good. I think this was was it was it Stanley or was it Warwick that it was like now is the perfect time to charge you in the back. Stanleys. Yeah, that was the Stanleys. Yeah, that that's yeah. A, it's like, yeah that, you, that was you the never thing. expect it. He he really waited until like he could just see which way it was going. It was like okay, you know because you, you think about you know um, Bosworth Field right. <laughs> Give Richard ten more minutes. Henry Tudor could be dead on the field. Yep. And, you know, Stanley would arrive and be like, you know, congratulations, good job. And, yeah. you know, we're totally cool, right? And he's like, mm, he's maybe not going to get there. Okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is that is one of the more plausible excuses I've heard over the years. It's much, much better than a lot of the other ones. <laughs> sure, so, we, were, we were sworn brothers. He said so. Yeah, I swear it. Yeah. And so getting in yeah and so but i mean the to get the other lord para lord paramount not warden but to get the tullys was through the marital alliance of of not just getting catelyn to marry the warden of the north but getting uh liza to marry the warden of the east that is like such a strong marital alliance mm-hmm. he also secures tullys. he secures two of his borders yeah so yeah, I Which mean, he's he always really, the problem with the Riverlands, but yeah. I mean, sure, the those are the borders where it's n- not as easy to to send troops through, but uh, 
the the reaches. I mean, you know, every other every other day you have someone saying, you know, I have a better claim to High Garden. Uh, so, but uh, it, it is interesting to see that. Uh, but I think that's actually one, another interesting thing with the uh, the rebellion is these with these lords, they actually form an internal unit, with the exception of the Stormlands, because they're kind of separated by the capital. But they have internal lines of communication and transit that really help Robert's uh, Robert's war effort. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to march troops down when you have that that route secured. Mm. Again, you know, Robert has the problem of he's got a big capital to his uh, north and he's got the populace and enemy reach to his west. But, I mean, you can't have everything. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, I mean, I know we disagree slightly about the order that the uh, first Blackfire Rebellion went in. But I think one of the ways to sort of wrap your head around, like, the what was driving kind of who went where and when is there's almost a need to, like, gather everyone up, right? Yeah. They're not, geog- like, especially for the Blackfires. No, you know, yeah. They've got this base in the reach, but they've also got little chunks in a lot yeah. of different places. And so a lot of what they're doing is just kind of, like, gathering support as they move this big army around. Whereas, you know, the, the Northern Alliance, like, they had the narrow sea. Yeah. You know, they That's could a good point, yeah. Get from the Vale to the north and to the Stormlands, you know, and that's a crucial moment because if those places can't get out, then it's a rebellion in one province. Yeah. You know, now well, it is a, a national civil war. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you don't want to get your, you also don't want to be in close and raptured though, by, and surrounded by enemies like Damon's son was of just gathering all his would be, yeah, but that's not even a, re- a rebellion in one province. It's a rebellion in one castle. Yeah, uh, true. So, I mean, you can. I mean, the the veil is even is very defensible. It would be very, very good yes. to to consolidate there. But the problem is, is that you you have levies in the north, and you the the riverlands now allows you to move troops where you need to move them. You can threaten the capital. I mean, the nice thing about the stormlands too is that the capital is threatened on all sides, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they can't actually do it until they actually levy the lords because it's a pre-modern, pre-bureaucratic, pre-nation-state army, so it takes time <laughs> to actually call the banners together. But uh, but even then, it's just the the threat of it is a lot worse than as if as uh, Stephen was saying with the with Damon's first Blackfire. It's like you've got little islands of not the most populous, powerful house in these regions. So not only do you have a numer- uh, local numerical inferiority, you've got to get to them or the, they're going to say, well, look, we, we raised our, our banner for the Black Dragon. And then Lord Aaron came in and just rolled over us with a giant steamroller. Yeah. And it's just, you know, that that's, you know, feudalism is based on protection. If you're not going to protect the people that yeah. stand for you, no one's going to swear loyalty to you. Yep. Well, that actually might then dovetail nicely into the next of just discussing the kings and their foibles and and i think we can talk more about what brought these rebellions on but before we get to that you're you're making me think fondly remembering fondly of season one of game of thrones in the show only scene of robert talking to cersei of just saying like what is different five five or one like one one united army a real army versus like five squabbling lords that are just more interested in staying in power 
and staying in their castles. Well, a lot of a lot of centralizing kings had the same idea. That's why you had oh, guys like the. That's why you had guys like the Iron King. Yes. Le Roi de Fer. Philip the Apolo- Fair. Apolo- apologies for anyone who actually speaks French, who I just <laughs> cursed with that pronunciation. And his uh, <laughs> compagnie d'ordonnance. Yeah. Uh, so, kind of one of the only good things from that came from Henry VIII and the Tudors, that centralization. Yeah, which was kind of accidental and paranoia, but, well, it was well, what it was. But also, the, you know, it, certainly from the level of the kings, but, you know, you, yeah. you look one level down and you've got people like, you know, Thomas Wolsey and Thomas Cromwell being like, okay, we need a bureaucratically rational state here staffed with people <laughs> who actually know what they're doing instead of, you know, the younger swords yeah. of earls and dukes who can barely read. Yeah. True enough. True enough. Uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit more about. Let's talk about basically the the age old question that we've spent hours on this podcast uh, talking about before. But but we need to get into it of just why did these rebellions really happen and and what and what happened and the parallels and differences between Robert and Damon. I mean, we got in both cases that. Um, the way a woman is treated hardens the heart of these warrior lords. One of uh, Damon, the woman he loves gets married to, to the Prince of Dorne and, and Robert, it's what Rhaegar does at that daggone freaking tourney at Harrenhal. And, yeah. and if you, if you go to our rotten age episode, just Jim and I just, we had very, very, very long, excruciating lengths to just talk about how bizarre, awful, stupid, everything Rhaegar did. We're not fans of Rhaegar, is what I'm saying. I, I, I disagree that it was excruciating. I could I could make fun of Ares Targaryen and Rhaegar all day. <laughs> it is interesting because in, in both cases, right, there's some aspect of chivalric romance at work. Yes. Um, but... I think one of the main differences is, you know, uh, Damon was already married <laughs> and had not been, like, formally betrothed to Daenerys. Like, maybe yep. he had this, you know, verbal promise from his dad, but, like, his dad was prone to promising lots of things to lots of people. Yep. Um, whereas, yeah. you know, the, Fireball, the you're totally of- going to be Kingsguard. Fireball, yeah, 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 you're totally going to be a Kingsguard. At the same time, like, yeah, babe, I totally love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, whereas, you know, with the case of, of uh, Harrenhal, like, even though that wasn't really the thing that made the rebellion happen, Mm-mm. it is a violation of, again, this, like, feudal social contract. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why, like, all chivalric romances that feature the abduction of a married woman by her lover always have to end with everyone in question dying. Is it's like that's the only way to bring the feudal contract back into force. It's like no, this is incredibly socially destabilizing. You know, this yeah, now needs uh, to be a doomed romance, not a safe, chaste romance. Yeah. Well, and whatever Rhaegar and Lyanna was, it did end in doom. But yep. Yeah. And I, I don't put too much stock in, in either. I mean, as much as we know 
we know from the books that that Robert it was 100% personal and he hated the Targaryens. He hated 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 the Targaryens. Well, it's more it's more uh, personal towards Rhaegar, and then he, also to Ares for the direct threat on his life. Because I mean, when you when you see him, with the the further away you go from those people, the less that rage kind of boils out. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you, you know he 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 says. You know, um, I should have killed Daenerys long ago. It's like, yeah, but uh, if you had actually really thought that, John Aaron wouldn't have been able to talk you out of it for years. Um, I mean, I'm not defending. I mean, the fact of the matter is, even if you consider it, you're already, as far as I'm concerned, you're a bad guy in in that book. But you can kind of see where, like, the the affront to his virility and masculinity by abducting Lyanna, the... That that sort of it, it really is much more personal to Robert, and so it's the the Targaryens that actually have personal thing you know personal things to implement. I mean, you can see, but yeah. I, I I I'll slightly disagree because uh, like in his real con conversation about the Targaryens in um I forget which chapter it is, but in in A Game of Thrones when when they're on the journey over to King's Landing, uh, and other than like a sarcastic reference to Baylor the Blessed, he's he really just knows his history and cites like the the Targaryens like I was right to depose them and he just thinks of all the atrocities they have done of of what Ares did what Rhaegar did they they were by the end they were nothing but living up to, to quote Shakespeare landlords not kings of just all you care about is exploitation of what you can get from us you don't care about what you should do as like what why we are kings and getting into this overarching idea of of that that concept of it's very intentional by martin it's richard ii is obviously very inspired um, yeah, inspires I've been writing a lot about this this area the second uh, with uh catlin the fifth oh perfect uh, okay you mean catlin chapter five not catlin the, the sorry yeah, <laughs> sorry catlin the yeah. fifth the, yeah. the fifth Catelyn chapter in yeah. Song of Swords, where yeah. you know Rob and Catelyn are standing over the tomb, the, of, the Mud Kings. Yeah, of yeah. Christopher the the Hammer of Justice, and I'm like, oh, so this is the scene in in Richard the Second where he's like, for God's sakes, let us sit upon the ground and tell sad tales of the death of kings. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, I I just think a lot of with when when I read that from Robert, the way I interpreted it was it's a post facto realization of a rationalization of, well, it has to have been for a just reason. Otherwise, I made myself absolutely miserable for years for nothing, <laughs> which I mean, again, you know, Robert's ultimately a very emotionally small man. So yeah. it really it's, sounds yes, like something it, you'd do. It, it is a bit of both. It is a bit of both. But I, I, I mean, do you know, it, we could disagree. It's it's OK. Yeah. Uh, it, well, I, I mean, heck, me, me yeah, and yeah. Admiral do all the time, right? <laughs> yeah, it's um, I'm not gonna comment that that you two deal with that. Uh, is and so, but getting it into the whole idea of of breaking the feudal contract, and because in some ways, and definitely, if you asked a Dornish man, I would, although maybe half, it, it might have been split halfway through for the reach and with Dorne. But what Darren II did in making that peaceful alliance, but a peaceful alliance that, as we've discussed many times on this podcast, makes a lot of sense on paper, but in practicality of like what the actual deal was, is the most 
biggest blank check ever. It's like, what? There's no punishment? Like, no submission? They get to keep all their honorific titles? Like, they're basically a fiefdom that you privately control. Yeah. It's like, but but we have peace. We have peace. Don't you like that? We have peace, and now there are allies. Well, not, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's like like you, you also have to remember that for, for Daron, the rationalization of that is in a very formative time of his life. It's war, 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 and then Baylor shows up with peace. So that's going to inspire him, and it's going to form a lot of his considerations. So, I mean, but I mean, it's, it's feudalism. The personal is political and vice versa. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's a good example where, like, it is a great peace for House Targaryen. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, it... You know, and I, I'm thinking, like, you know, yeah, how many wars did the Habsburgs fight where, you know, thousands of Spaniards and Germans die horribly so that they can wind up as, like, you know, Dukes of Milan? It's like, well, this doesn't matter to, to the Spanish-German soldiers, but it's like, mm, I, I'm, I'm the king, I'm the emperor, you know, and I'm paying you, so, you know, you're going to do it. Maybe, um, maybe they're paying you. Yeah, well, you know, if they don't, they sack rum. Potato, <laughs> <laughs> potato. So, but but getting into that of of, and it 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 would require a lot of spin control on the part of if Damon had won of really justifying his rebellion of saying that, and that's part of why maybe that Damon doesn't succeed ultimately, even though it does come down ultimately to the Battle of Redgrass Fields, it's still a case of that Darren hasn't done anything overtly tyrannical, overtly breaking the contract to where it's really appealing. It's really just that you have to rely on all these rumors that his horrendous father has spread. Yeah, I was going to say... Along with the... the huge credibility but to, to just focus do... on, on legitimacy. That's the only real basis that they go on yeah. for, for attracting people. It's like Damon is the legitimate king, not Darren. The king that we've been following for 10 years was actually just misguided. Like we were wrong to follow yeah. him. This I, I, I was yeah. thinking like, what could they do post facto, like post victory? And I was <laughs> like, okay, you'd have to like produce Aegon the fourth's quote unquote will or like, Or or a a confession of uh, Aemon the Dragon Knight, like a sealed confession of Aemon the Dragon Knight. Or, you know, really played up the, like, you know, they were about to arrest Damon for, you know, but he hadn't done anything yet. Like, well, really emphasize that. Sealed order, which is like, you know, I fear my brother, so I want him dead, even though he hasn't done it. Like, you'd have to really. Go yes. into it like Tudor yeah, sell style the, on sell the, yeah, sell the attempted kinsling. Hey. Really sell it. Stephen, Jim, remember we, we, like what he George R. R. Martin goes for for his inspiration of of the the Tudor revisionism of just remember you've got this easy target for to make into a demon. You've got this scary albino with a hideous birthmark that's shaped oh, yeah. like a raven. That's right. Constantly whispering poison into the right. Blood, deceiving blood and controlling and, and, and magic. I blood raven. He's he's Jafar. He's an evil vizier. This yeah. evil vizier that controlled the puppet Darren and forced him to go against the I, 
I pre- really like that Rasputin comparison. I really like it. I haven't even thought of it till now, but oh man, it is wonder. It is delightful to now to think about. Like that's what they'll do. It's just like you know what what they have to do. Like uh, Richard the Third, um, 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 killed his his nephews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he, he killed his nephews. Tyrant. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Just, just you got to come up with things like that. Uh, Edward the Second. Uh, 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 Gaberston. Uh, you know, bad stuff. You got to come up with a. You can spin. It's it's yeah. anything. I'm just it's saying, like, the there's winners. there's some you know there's some spin cases where like you've got you know a lot of meat to work with, and there's others <laughs> where you're. Yeah, you got to grasp it strong. Trying your best with soup bones. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was a really weird yeah. metaphor. Sorry. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, but it, it and you know, con- contrarily speaking, pretty much nobody. Uh, outside of the most diehard Targaryen apologists, is like, you know what? Yeah, he was absolutely right to murder Rickard Stark, uh, <laughs> deny him his deny his right to trial, and just kind of laugh as he does it. You know, let's just spit on every single. I mean, it, it's one of the things. It's it's kind of amazing. It's like, you know, people say, why should Duran Martell or Mace Tyrell care what happens to the Starks? It's like you depend on those exact same protections. Yeah, that's why I think was well, so politically important. Is that like you could at least say like okay, Ares is a raving nut, but at least we've got this like, you know, charm JFK yeah. prince. Exactly. But all of his shenanigans before kind of like already say like oh boy this is a lot of lords could see like ooh okay raving lunatic king and the sun's barely better like barely better. I mean, you know, I mean, if you steal, if you steal the the prince, you know, the, the the lady, the noble ladies of the houses, that's not what a prince is supposed to do. That's what bandits do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's a little like it, it's a lesser crime because, you know, think about like what Aegon the Fourth got up to. Like it was seen yeah. as seemly, but it was like other than well, the other than the um, uh, the brothers of. Um, uh, the uh, the toins the toins yeah, yeah. like no Simon Toyn was the outlaw and I'm always forgetting the the yeah. Kingsguard Toyn anyway other than yeah. those yeah. you don't see a lot of like outraged kinfolk trying to murder him over his mistresses it's well, much well, more like you know Steve, hey, they're also sleep with they're, my relative please yeah that that's why is like the is that they were mo- like the infamous Butterwell story of just here are my daughters your Majesty. Your grace, here, have them, do whatever you want. Of like, they knew what the jig was, and so they knew, and not to get too into it, but just like, there is this veil of consent, kind of. So it's well, not- the biggest something nope. to be gained from it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you can just, you can kind of see though, but I mean- there's really no defending Ares, and it's it's really disruptive because now well, everyone. Well, I mean, it, it, you said it way back in the day, Stephen. It's like now everyone is marked for death. Yeah. If, if 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 Rickard yeah. Stark can't be can't depend on a right to trial, then no one can because there's no one higher than him, with the exception of Rhaegar. Yeah. I'll also say um, to add on, but I think is crucial, Jim, is it's not just that he he doesn't get a trial. And he gets executed. If he was just like chopped your head off, that would still be pretty bad. It would still be pretty much what happens when Joffrey does it. But it's 
it's far more egregious when it's that that he burns him alive and and that poor Brandon strangles himself trying to save his father. And but how much of, of that know- is known outside outside of the, the throne room? Because, I mean, Catelyn didn't know. It's 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 a, okay. it's a but it's a question that's actually very inconsistent in the novels, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's a minor world build, building element, which does matter, but I can see why it kind of got off to the wayside. He's got more descriptions of food that he needs to put in there. <laughs> but but no, that's important though. Is 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 that everyone knew, and that's part of the of why Ares ultimately falls. I I believe is because he's just shown these consistent abuses. And just become more and more, especially right after the defiance at Duskendale, and what he does it there. That well, really. I was also uh, thinking Harrenhal, because like, yeah, you know, one of the things that they mentioned is like no one's seen the king in yeah. about a decade. Like he just doesn't yeah. leave the house, yeah. so he's kind of an abstract figure. He's like, oh, he is the king, as opposed yes. to King Aerys. Yeah. And then it's like he emerges, and they're like. If this guy wasn't the king, we would be, like, you know, throwing him out for vagrancy. Like, yeah. he just looks, yeah. you know, yeah. like... Right. Well, you know. in, our, in this podcast, when we, when we were talking about that, we, we said, like, uh, Jim said it perfectly, it's it's Howard Hughes. It's Howard Hughes coming out yeah. of his yeah, 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 yeah. and just being like, what the... Uh, yeah. and, and unfortunately, just Howard Hughes was just a rich kind of... He, he was a, I mean, he was a playboy and an airplane magnet. I mean, yeah. he was the guy back in the 40s. Big yeah. yeah. My mogul, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But, he, he was everything uh, in California. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, yeah. But to go from... But, yeah, but ultimately, he's still just a rich loony versus, like, but that's our king. Yeah. Our king. Yeah, it would be as if a, a U.S. president or... Uh, or you know, it would be would just show up all how you know putting tissue boxes on his feet and stuff like that. Yes, we've never seen the U.S. president act like a complete nut job in public in recent years. My favorite one of that is John John Quincy Adams believed that the Earth was hollow and there were mole men under there. Yeah, although that was not like. No, that's not destructive. It's 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 a, it's, it's it's early Aries where it's. It's eccentric, but, but yeah. it's okay. It's ultimately harmless. It, it, yeah, I was going to say, like, by the standards of the 1820s, that's not even, like, that <laughs> loony scientifica. Like, you know, there were still people openly debating whether the Earth was flat <laughs> at the t- in the mid-19th century. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, there's still people who do, so... that now, yeah. but... Yeah. Anyway... Uh, okay, that yeah, that now we're getting off topic. <laughs> yeah. So should we talk about the role of contingency and luck? Yes. Yeah. Well, let's get into it. Yeah. Sure. So I wanted to sort of start out this conversation with a, a quote uh, from Sworn Sword. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and this is uh, Eustace Osbury talking to Dunk, and he said, uh, "If Damon had ridden over Gwen Corbray, if Fireball had not been slain on the eve of battle." If Hightower and Tarbeck and Oakhart and Butterwell had lent us their full strength instead of trying to keep one foot in each camp, if Manfred Lothston had proved true instead of treacherous, if Storms had not delayed Lord Bracken sailing with the Mirish crossbowmen, if Quicksilver had not been caught with the stolen dragon's eggs, 
so many ifs, sir. Had anyone come out differently, it could have all turned the other way. And this is what got me thinking about uh, the role of contingency and luck in both rebellions, because we can absolutely discuss what the like how Damon's rebellion would have shaken out differently if these events had gone the other way. But I was thinking, what would that list of ifs have been for, say, Viserys Targaryen talking to Daenerys? Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, if, you know, um, if Tywin Lannister had been loyal. Yeah. If if Storm's End had fallen earlier, if Robert had been slain at Stony Sept, if uh, the 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 Gull Town had not fallen. You know. if, if the people at the at, at uh, the bells had been had been loyal to the crown, yeah, yeah, and turned turned him over, turned him um, over. You know, if, so the Roberts were if John if John Huntington had been a little bit more savage, just all of these things, so many, so yeah. many ifs. I think probably the most the most important would have probably been if um, if Mace had actually taken Storm's End. Because yeah. we, we, we do see we do see the loss of your capital holding and how much that influences Rob Stark's campaign, even though ultimately, I mean, you know, I mean, so much of that is luck, uh, you know, or, you know, Martin, Martin making sure that the plot goes where he wants to given it, given it his little nudge, um, which I mean, yeah, I mean, that that's well, no, that's I, that's writing. I mean, I would have preferred I personally would have preferred something more like Conway Castle or something like that, an actual scheme. Because then, you know, it would also have made uh, Theon's transformation from uh, that much more apparent. But, I mean, that's that's beside the point. But uh, the fact that Mace would have been able to, he would have been able to both put his army into the field to join with, uh, I mean, at that point it would have been Rhaegar, probably. I don't think he would have been able to get it when John Connington was still around. Um, I mean, Storm's End is just, it's the fo- the fortress that has never fallen, except for the except for the, the part where it does in the preview chapters, but that's, uh, uh, spoilers. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so then you have, he can both reinforce King's landing, you know, certainly get help, uh, Ares with, uh, making sure there's more men in the battlements. Uh, the red wine fleet can get the, the, re- uh, narrow sea clear. Uh, not that they need it that much, but it's useful if they need to be able to, to get in shipments to King's landing. It's nice to have a, an open, see for you to go through and he can send troops with um with roberts uh, to uh, the the trident it's you know they they say yes we were outnumbered by about five thousand which i mean i think they uh, it was 40 40 000 to thirty five thousand. so that is a numerical advantage but it's not a commanding one not if not if mace was throwing and you know if it was sixty five thousand to thirty five thousand, or well given that the roberts rebellion numbers are so weird mm. it's uh, I mean, I only complain about it every single time I, it even comes up. But, you know, even if it was 50,000 to 35,000, that gives uh, Rhaegar a lot more ability to put pressure in multiple fronts that could maybe isolate uh, Robert, that could isolate, I mean, what is Foster, it? Uh, certainly. Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, John Aaron's forces were about to be flanked by the Dornish, but Lynn Corbray was able to, no, no. The Dornish were about to flank Robert, and then Lynn Corbray led a charge on the Dornish forces, and that was able to cripple them and kill Lewin Martell. So that meant that the, if they had more forces, then they could have intercepted, and then uh, the Dornish forces could have flanked Robert. 
or possibly had just been able to um, to push him back and keep just keep uh, them clear, or even had have maybe had, had even tried to encircle Roberts uh, Royal. I mean, he was certainly not a man who stayed in the back with the reserve like Tywin. <laughs> no, you could have. I mean, encircling Robert's a lot easier to do if you have such an overwhelming numerical advantage, even if your troops are much more green than the veteran troops. Mm. Well, yeah, I, I don't know what I can chime in from there, but other than to say that, yeah, it, it, but that's part of a war is always that there's always just that's the thing that's most egregiously annoying sometimes in, in history is that there's this magical thing called luck. Yeah, uh, well, I, I was also thinking, you know, going the other way right what were the different you know what were the sort of necessary and what were the sufficient um it's mm-hmm. in in the blackfire rebellion right damon riding over gwen corbray is sort of an interesting mix of like military and political yes right? you know on the one hand you know maybe he can sweep aside um maycar before baylor uh, can come up but well the big thing that you still have him around to yeah. rally your forces. Yeah. Uh, Fireball being slain on the eve of battle is interesting because, you know, the main question is, okay, so who's he replacing as commander? My guess would be, um, like, Mervyn Peak. Um, yeah. So well, maybe the, the center collapses. Mm-hmm. Um, or contrarily, towers, what if uh, yeah. Fireball charges... On, on there, and then uh, Damon decides to engage Makar. Yeah, that's yeah. another possibility. Um, Hightower and Tarbeck and Okar and Butterwell, that's more, again, that's like a mix of, of the military and the political. It's like, okay, mm. the Blackfire army, much bigger, but also they look like a more... Um, a stronger viable, support and a stronger yeah, cause. A, a more viable uh, climate because, like, High towers, especially, right? That's mm-hmm. yeah. that's you know that that the you know the high towers yeah. are mini kings. Uh, yeah. It's just no one acknowledges that. Uh, likewise, well, the Lostins. Uh, I mean, that uh, you know that might have brought the Riverlands more into the Blackfire camp. The one that is the most interesting is Quickfinger and the Dragon's Eggs, uh, <laughs> because that's more in the realm of like political symbolism, right? You know, we saw how important the dragon. We're also going to never were. find out what that means. We're never going to find out what that means. That's just I, that's a I total think, riddle. In yeah, I think it was like, you know pretty simple. It's like you know there was some sneak thief. I mean, yeah. think about it like blood and cheese, but less way yeah. less kid murdery. Who was like <laughs> trying to steal dragon eggs from the Red Keep and got caught. Yeah. And you know, imagine what a kind of like coup it would be. It's like oh. The Targaryens have lost all their dragon eggs, dragon and eggs. like, you know, now Damon's got them, and you know, will he be able to hatch one, or is he going to be able to bribe people with them? It's like, yeah. you know, there's some really fascinating political possibilities with that. Yeah, well, that, that's I mean, hey, th- th- those eggs. Just what Viserys says, like these three eggs: one will get me a fleet, one will get me an army, and one will get me tons of money. It's what I need. I mean that those are the, the the materials you need to to fight a rebellion, but uh, yeah. you know it's just it's just it's because I mean we're we're, we're working with uh, I mean we're working hampered here because we didn't we know so little about the first Blackfire Rebellion as compared to the Roberts yeah. Rebellion, but yes. it is it is interesting to see because especially when it comes to war you have this snowballing effect of early successes that translate into later strategic victories, 
Uh, now, not it does, it's not always the case. I mean, we always we all you have to do is take a quick look through a history book to see somebody who starts out strong and then peters out when they don't have the strategic depth to finish their you know to accomplish their strategic objectives. But I mean, certainly when it came to Robert's Rebellion, if he fails at Gulltown, that's a big blow to the yeah. rebellion early on. Mm-hmm. There, I mean, it's still going to persist, of course. But yeah, but it's you know potentially you've got a loyalist fleet. You yeah. Know, uh, sorry, a, a loyalist army landing in a friendly port, and it's like okay, you can hold out in the Erie, but like you're not going anywhere. Not yeah. Anything. And it might that might give Hoster Tully cold feet when it comes to jumping in for the. I mean, it probably won't because the Malisters were killed too, and if Hoster Tully just kind of poo-poo's uh, the uh, the Iron Throne just murdering the Malisters for no reason, then that's you know certainly but i mean it, it would certainly make well, him plus he, he plus he also still pretty sure that yeah okay ned stark's still around he, he'll marry catlin he'll marry cat there, there's yeah. but yeah, it might it might also embolden it might uh, cause doran martell to commit more support or maybe actually send somebody to king's landing themselves and say look we're going to give you our full support but we're also going to maybe instead just enact certain concessions be a little bit more forceful uh, as opposed to just sending, you know, half, you know, going at half strength and just mm-hmm. kind of accepting that as such as it may be. But I mean, that's, that's getting really, I mean, you know, I mean, we could, we could talk for days if we were allowed to have that much latitude with, with our hypotheticals and our what ifs. The what ifs, but yeah, so many ifs. That was the, that was what we called it for uh, when we ranked the claimants. So many ifs, how close did you get to winning? But kind of um, coming back to what you once and I talked about Jim and Stephen chime in as well of Martin really loves fantasy. And in, in both of these rebellions, it really comes down to one big final battle. Yeah. And in both you, you see the big final big traditional fantasy clash. You got Robert and Rhaegar on horseback in the middle of a river fighting. And those images in the world book are just gorgeous, beautiful stuff. And we haven't gotten any images of it, but Damon Blackfire in his b- gorgeous black armor and red ornaments fighting oh, a white, a knight that. white in the of the Kingsguard. That right there, that yeah. is. It. Yeah, the only thing I think we have is the, the death scene. The charge. Yeah. Well, we have We've the got death that scene. great painting yeah. of the charge. Yeah, by yeah. Mike Miller. Yeah. Uh, Where you yeah, can really see that like idea of you know he's the warrior come to life. It's just like. You know, mm-hmm. he's got arrows sticking out of him, but it just looks like the Terminator. It's like, okay, what are you going to do to this guy? He's going to well, cut you to pieces. You Seemingly unkillable. Yeah. But then I'm trying to remember who we have from there. I can't remember. It's a Japanese warrior who um, he was filled with so many arrows that his body was standing up on the bridge. And nobody dared come close until someone, uh, like a commoner, sailed down on the boat under the bridge to stick him with a spear to say that he was dead. Wow. I can't remember, I can't remember exactly who that was. I want to Great say... Story. Yeah. But but then we also talked about, and this is just Martin's writing, the fantasy dying, of that... Thankfully, the fantasy doesn't die for for Robert, the trident, it dies at King's Landing. Yep. Then, like, right at Redgrass Fields, the, the fantasy dies in... In what you were talking about earlier, Stephen, of the the great what if, I think why Eustace uh, uh, is so obsessed with with 
going over Gwen Corbray is because he didn't, because he tried to drag him back. That's what what Blood Raven noticed. He's exposed. Yeah, it's it's and he's then, literally killed by chivalry. Yeah. yeah. And, and you also have this, the, the fantasy dying when, uh, when Blood Raven is like, no, 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 target his son first. Yes. That'll make sure he stays on, stays on the field. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's, it, that's that's the uh, the moment, the, the the I don't see any babies, I see dragon spawn yeah. uh, moment. It's it's like, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's where reality just comes crashing into these high fantasy moments. And Martin loves uh, reality punching idealism in the face. It's all over all of his works, really. But, I mean, but he understands that. I mean, I, Martin hasn't spoken about this, but there's a quote by, um, I think it was McNamara, talking about World War II and the firebombing of Tokyo. And he says, I mean, it was just a right statement of just that if we hadn't won the war, we would be on trial for crimes against humanity for that. I'm just like, that's that's total war. That's barbarism, but it's a barbarism that well, I mean, that's 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 war. And I mean, he to Martin's credit, uh, I mean, Stevens only says this maybe about a billion times, but he's a romantic. He's a romantic, not a cynic. Yes. Because, I mean, and all you have to do is look at Brienne or Sansa's chapters and to be mm. like, yes, no, the ideals mean something. Yes. It's just well, that they the ideals are not always rewarded. Uh, no. And they're hard. And they're hard, yeah, too. They're. You know, mm-hmm. to the extent that they're victories, they're usually mortal victories. Yes. You know, Existential ones, hard. yeah. Exactly. Those are very hard to, uh, you know, to touch. Well, yeah, well, if you want to be just a pure cynical a-hole, you can be Tywin, and you and look how, how much everyone mourns Tywin, versus everyone still is basically fighting in the North valiantly in memory of Ned, and later in memory of Rob. I'm just like... What the hell? No, none of this is cool. No, no, this is garbage. No, no. Versus Tywin's like, oh crap, it's set. It sucks. He's gone. I mean, yeah. they're they're tearing they're tearing apart his legacy before the corpse is cold. Yeah, literally. Yep. Uh, but yeah, the fantasy dies at, at as as I said, and and so maybe a little bit of just character assessment. The one thing, and Stephen, uh, I, w- I definitely want your opinion on this, but comparing the two, and we do have that burden of uh, of always, like, we know more of Robert at the end, when Robert's kind of become a shadow of himself, as Ned vociferously reminds us time and time again, like, this isn't the Ned I knew, this isn't the Ned I went, this isn't the Robert I went to war with, this isn't the, the Robert I believed in, this isn't the Robert that that was the fantasy hero. That was Lancelot. That was, that was Aragorn. This is like this, this old bloated, like sad version of him. It's yeah, old I, Edward the fourth instead of young like Edward the fourth. Like he reminds me a lot of, um, uh, the character that Bruce Springsteen meets in, uh, the song better days. Mm. Oh yeah. You know, the sort of the high school hero, and it's like 15 years later. Yep. It's glory, glory days. Yeah. Glory yeah. days. Sorry. No, um, no, it's it's good. It's a good song. Yeah, it's a good song. I just forgot the title. Um, but uh, you know, that's that's the whole thing about Robert. It's like his his the best time in his life was when he was like 16. Yeah. And well, he says, well, he outright says it is like the best time was the war, and pretty much every day since has been crap. Yeah. But 
But going at least to that time of Robert the Leader, and that even though we do know the cracks and that he wasn't as much of an idealist as, as Ned was in, in this war of saying like, yes, we are ridding these evil, tyrannical kings. It's more of a grudge for him. But, and this is also, okay, forgive me, Stanis Dance, I'm going to say this. This is why, why Robert was the best of the, of the three Baratheon brothers, is that he was true steel, that he had, he had charm, but he also had the steel, to, the iron to lead. He had both of, of Renly and Stannis' strengths and virtues. And yes, See, yeah, I, I, I say, though, he, when I say, apply it to Renly, but I, but I do mean that, is that Robert could make a friend out of an enemy with just a cup of wine... And I don't know if I can say the same of Damon. That's what I'm getting at. Is yeah, that is I, that that Damon is like and going back to when I re- first read the 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 history accounts in the World of Ice and Fire, is it's a real big debate of how much of this is is Bittersteel, how much of this is yeah. is all these people around him, and how much is of it, is it just like he's this kind of this warrior dupe, this yeah, pup. I mean, let me let me take the other side on this. So. You know, yes, Robert, personally charming, you know, um, as a, you know, commander, decent, although I think you'd call it a mixed record. Um, mixed record? He only no. lost once. He only lost once. And, gonna defend my but, like, was Robert. not hugely important at the Bells, either. Like, you know, he wins it well, we, we, that is, we get, that is we the get so many. you're like, it's just yeah. him. He's the one, and it's all on him. And that was a very good battle. But the major difference I'd say is that all of the politics that like let, you know, going all the way back to the beginning of our discussion Mm -hmm. and the creation of this political alliance that holds together, um, Robert was completely uninvolved in that. Mm. You know, in in fact, for the most part, completely geographically separated, right? He's down in the Stormlands. He's in hiding. Um, he, he's, you know, it's John Aaron who is really the, the brains of the operation. Yeah, well, now, I think everyone agrees on that. With Damon, it's an open question. Like, he could be as much a, you know, a cipher, a puppet for Bitter Steel as uh, Robert was for, for John Aaron. But, you know, to the extent that we know anything about him, he seems to have or at least people around him seem to have paid a lot more attention to the mechanics of the state. Mm. Yeah. You know, the like Robert didn't have coins minted. No. Right? He didn't set up a rebel capital. He didn't create the the, you know, bureaucracy necessary to run a sort of alternative state. So either Damon was had that kind of mind or at least have the like good sense to pit people who did have that kind of mind. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and sign off on it too. Cause I mean, he's a King. So yeah, he does get, he does get the, you know, the judgment call. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I've always thought about is like, what would uh, a Damon Blackfire monarchy, you know, look like, mm. um, you know, I, I certainly think it would have an enormous number of political challenges. I mean, you know, in addition to, like, ongoing war and having to, like, rewrite the political fabric of the nation. Um, but it does seem like they had people with real administrative ability 
mm-hmm. in their camp. So I, I don't think it would actually, I don't think it would be another Robert Baratheon administration that starts out with so much promise, but just like kind of completely drops the ball. I think okay. it would have been something different. Like it also could have gone to shit. Like he could have been, you know, another dare on the first and been like, incredibly you know successful in terms of mobilizing resources that then all get pissed away on the Dorner sands yeah. but i do think that there was this like ability to understand and mobilize institutions that didn't exist with robert yeah, yeah. well uh, you, you kind of alluded to a whole other debate which is just robert as a king which i mean I am like, yes, Robert wasn't a good king, a good or, or, or at all a great king. I do maintain he's kind of like the better version of Viserys I in that he's the only thing that kept the realm together yeah. in the minute that, that Robert was gone. And that's like kind of like you only realize how important and competent, in quotes, he is when after he's gone, when suddenly it's Joffrey and it's Ned quickly gets executed and suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute, we hate each other. That, I mean, that, I think that that comparison kind of goes both ways because it's also, yeah. you know, the the knock on Viserys the first is that he just let all of this tension oh, yeah. keep yeah. boiling up, you know, and in his own way, like Robert kind of Robert did the does. same yeah. thing. Like yes. he yeah. didn't, you mm. know, the, the tension between like the Lannister camp and his brothers you know, to, to draw the analogy to, like, the Woodbills versus Clarence and Gloucester, like, was there. Very intentional, but yes. Yeah. But at least Edward tried to, like, do yeah. stuff. You know, Edward IV, like, yeah, you know, he, he screwed around too much and he drank too much. But he at least, like, understood feudal politics enough to be like, okay, you know, how do I make sure that my brothers are kept on side and are given enough incentives and enough I rewards think, that they don't feel that they have to rebel again. Well, they would never rebel. They would never rebel against Edward, but I mean, it didn't well, work. Clarence did. Jo- <laughs> oh, wait. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these were hard-won I, lessons in, in Edward the Fourth's case. Yeah, and it's it's also interesting to see. Just I mean, you see with where Robert does nothing as the, as everything keeps going corrupt, you know, keeps getting corruption. Okay. Maybe you can't really, maybe you don't understand Littlefinger because Littlefinger has got his, uh, you know, his kind of chicanery, which you really need to be able to get down into the nitty gritty and bust out the books and run down all of these, um, you know, these schemes. Okay. Okay. You, you don't really, okay, you don't get Westerosi that. forensic accountants. Okay. Okay. So, all right, let's, we we could say all right maybe you didn't quite get that but I mean Cersei's corruption I mean you know all of this other Anna stuff Slint. yeah all of this stuff is is very clearly stuff that he he needs to weigh in on and it, he, and it's just like well I'm miserable it's like yeah you still have a job to do yes <laughs> yes yes hey I'm, I, I defend Robert, but I only defend him so much. That's yeah. all I'll say. But I, I also disagree about Stannis not being because uh, not being a leader. And I'm only going to say one sentence about it because you don't go to the end of the world to fight a war after a disastrous defeat for someone you ain't following. I mean, they went to the literal end of the world. Yeah. If I if I had to make a comparison, Stannis is like a super niche indie band. Uh, yeah. He doesn't have that yeah. much of a fandom, 
but what fandom he has will drive across five states just yeah. to see him play. Yes. Oh, yes. Well, no, no debate yeah. there. Um, well, but, but you know, there's also another interesting remember, thing. Oh, God. Uh, or, well, I was going to say earlier for, for sieging a capital, but that's why Renly basically stops his campaign. His, he was slowly doing his Fabian strategy of starving out King's Landing before he was going to eventually come to King's Landing and hopefully just the gates will be open, but otherwise besiege this King's Landing when he gets word that, what, they're sieging Storm's End? Okay, I got to come over and talk to my idiot brother. Well, I mean, he, I mean, it's not good for Renly because he just, he's like, all right, I got to go and do this immediately. Let me go and outrun all of my supply wagons. He's getting, I mean, he, he's having supply problems on friendly territory. That's how bad Renly is. But, but, but but yeah, no, it's another interesting thing about the reason why maybe Robert succeeded. There was absolutely no disunity in senior command. This is one thing that, uh, that you can really see with um, yeah, I was gonna say uh, the closest the, you get is Hoster, but he's at yeah least, he's someone you can work with. He's not yeah. I mean he I mean he needed to be wheeled and dealed. That's I mean if if that's the worst you get in a coalition military, <laughs> you're doing yeah. amazing. But it's like um, you know I, I, when I think about that, the big thing I always think about is the Third Servile War, the Spartacus Rebellion. Yes. One of the big reasons why it failed was that the the mm-hmm. senior leaders disagreed i mean some of them wanted to go to northern italy and go for freedom some of them wanted to go and you know really bring the hammer down to the people that enslaved them and it's just okay well you know i mean so much i mean the coalition was kind of together but i mean a lot of them just did go north you Mm -hmm. know the the big uh you know later on spartacus didn't have the numbers of forces that he did so Um, recommend check out uh, Barry Strauss's Spartacus War. It's a phenomenal book. Or if you're more into historical fiction, uh, George R. R. Martin's pupil, David Anthony Duran, wrote a magnificent book, The Risen. Check it out. And it's got a big George R. R. Martin quote on the on the front of it, which I won't lie, didn't make me want to buy it. <laughs> hey, it, marketing, you gotta you gotta sell, and that's that's important. Yeah, I was gonna say for... there's a reason why the Accursed Kings all of a sudden yes. like, yeah. did their entire marketing strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I mean, well, I write myself, and you know, I'm really struggling to have to actually get people to read my stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's all of us. Yeah. So, but I do attribute what you were saying earlier, uh, and that's what I again compliment for for Robert for of of having that ability to inspire such loyalty, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I understand from Ned's point of view just the heartbreaking reality of like to believe so much in someone and have that person kind of end up not meeting those expectations. Cause I went to war with you. I, I did everything for you and to really believe in. And that's also the big difference. I think in, in that Damon definitely does have that quality of that. The people that fought for Damon as Eustace plainly demonstrates is like, they believed in Damon 100%. They loved and worshiped Damon. But just as yeah. much people love Darren, people yeah. love Darren. Or, and, or Baylor. And remembered as, oh, and, and yeah, and Baylor. Uh, uh, and so Darren is remembered by half the country, mind you, but still half of the, the nation as Darren the Good. And uh, and, 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 and his and, and to speak great, on great Baylor, grandson uh, is 
like models his rule kind of on Darren, and he becomes one of the most popular Targaryen kings. So, well, it depends on who on who who's uh, doing the raiding. The nobles didn't didn't like Egg, that half a, <laughs> that half a peasant that's trying to you know stamp st- uh, stomp all over our traditional rights. But speaking about Baylor Breakspear for a second, I think that's another thing that really was a big problem with. Damon's campaign is that there is an effective warrior and leader in Baylor Breakspear. Makar too, but he's not nearly as yeah. popular. Makar's yeah. um, the status. Guys, well, to, to make another comparison, like Baylor hasn't made off with anyone betrothed, right? Yeah. His yeah. his chivalric credentials are impeccable. Yeah. Yep. No, I mean, and, and he, he's he's great. I mean, you know, we we all love Baylor Breakspear, and we and we we mourn when he dies in the in the mist or in the the hedge night. But uh, it's just it's interesting because I mean you have um, at the and end he, the t- he, he beat you know, Damon at the wedding of Daenerys. Yeah, yeah but I'm, but I mean Jor- it is. But also remember that Jorah Mormont beat Jamie Lannister. So let's. <laughs> but I mean it's it is important. I I agree in in terms of symbolism. But I think it's just what's so much more important is the fact that you have such a capable military mind in yeah. in Baylor, and you do not have an equivalent really on the royalist side i mean you have the, the hands of the king yeah. uh, what's his name lord longtable uh i mean he just he completely butchers you know he's he's like i'm gonna fight with words and everyone is like you know word, the, the part the time for words is long past when they take gull town um <laughs> and then you have john connington who's eager for glory and just walks himself you know deploys you know does not fight adequately i mean i mean i don't think that uh Burning the town would have been a good idea. I think that would have caused an uprising in King's Landing itself when the small folk are like, wait a minute, you're burning us? Um, but, uh, I mean, he didn't do the the Arthur Dane thing with the with the Kingswood Brotherhood. You can see kind of the, the comparison and contrast mm-hmm. with that. I mean, you had Arthur Dane and you had uh, Gerald Hightower who were, who were competent fighters and probably decent generals as well. But where are they? We, we don't know. I mean, you have Lewin Martell. Lewin Martell is probably no no joke, but he's stuck in King's Landing because Ares is trying to make sure that the Dornish don't rebel against him. You have Jamie Lannister, who's a great who's a great uh, fighter, but he's got to be stuck in King's Landing because he's a hostage against Tywin Lannister. So all of your good military leaders are not in the field, not doing what they need to be doing. Whereas you have uh, Baylor Breakspear, who is. In the field, you have Makar, who's hold, who holds the line with an anvil. I mean, you, he lost two component armies, and he was the third, and he was able to keep them from routing. That's yeah, not that nothing. Very, so, I mean, uh, you have George Thomas esque. Oh yeah, I mean, it's complete it's, with the like, you know, no one likes him as much as the more charismatic guys. Yeah, I think of Solomon Meredith, actually, when I'm thinking of Makar's holding action. Uh, in the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, mm. the, the Meredith Iron Brigade lost, I think it was 75 to 80 percent of their um, their number when they were fighting against um, uh, A.P. Hill's Third Corps to cover the the, the withdrawal of the uh, the fir- uh, First Corps, which was Reynolds and now went to Doubleday. Um and then also the Howard's Corps, who were on their flank, he was. They were able to pretty much cover that withdrawal, and then they withdrew in good order. They didn't rout and break, and then they had to go and reconstitute the Iron Brigade later. That's amazing. That's an amazing feat of military uh, skill, and that's that's Makar. Okay, I think we've exhausted our like 
extra, yeah. you know, outside of Game of Thrones. Suffice to say that Makar is that is that I do all the, and this is something we we've touched on this podcast before, but and I just wrote an essay about this when I was defending this um, Viserys the second and Aegon the third, but. This is something that just happens both in Westeros and the real world of just that we we really like flashy people versus like stable, reliable people that are kind of quite frankly boring. Of just that Makar is that great example of like he's he does nothing bad. He's not, not he's actually a pretty decent guy, but he's also quite frankly boring. And so he's just like kind of just just straightforward like huh like I did my job. Why am I not as loved as Baylor? Like well. But he was the hammer. Yeah. Well, I mean, amateurs discuss battles. Professionals discuss logistics. That's <laughs> that's Napoleon. So I know yeah. you said we exhausted it, but I, th- I think I can throw that you one need, in. You needed one more? You needed one more. <laughs> one more. One more. <gasps> okay. And I think that covers most of everything of just... We went through the, the politics, we went through the alliances, and we went through the final battle. Any we last... went through luck, yeah. And we, we, we and really yeah, got we it. Luck. I mean, there's a great luck story. I, I won't exhaust our, our historical parallels. I'll say it off camera. But just, yeah, there's luck is such an, a, a strange, annoying thing that is very vital in, in all these stories. Oh, I know that as a, on a very deep professional level. <laughs> so much time spent debating historical forces versus contingency. So, I think this has been this has been a wonderful discussion. But let's kind of ra- ra- round it up um, and maybe just talk a little bit about legacy. I mean, what is what is the legacy of, of these men and these rebellions, and that one succeeded and one didn't, and that one kind of confirmed the Targaryens. And one said that no, that the rightful cause, and to kind of, I would say, a bit charitably disagree with D&D of that Robert's Rebellion, was it based on a lie or was it a just cause? What, what do we, what do we think about all these kinds of things? That's an interesting question because, like, on the one hand, Robert succeeded and Damon didn't. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like there's not a you know one generation later there's not a lot left of the baratheon legitimist faction out there like if stannis goes that's the last of it right no more Mm -hmm. um whereas you know even though daemon failed like it kept going for generations i mean it helped that there's a whole brood of yeah. Oh, absolutely. Kids. But it's it's also it, it it's not just the the fact that there were kids out there, you know, because Viserys was still out there. It's that people were still willing to fight in the name of those kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which suggests that like something was being done. Some of those kids. Remember the Mystery Knights. Some of those kids, not all of them. <laughs> yeah, not all of them, but like, and you know, four more of them. <laughs> You know, yeah. and and their descendants. So you know, yeah, yeah it would clearly something went, you know, if not militarily right for the Blackfires, politically right enough to make them relevant in mm-hmm. in a way that the you know in a sort of sustained way. Mm. Yep. No, nope. that's a that's a that's a good point, and I I think for you can just kind of see where 
the you can see where a lot of the differences that pushed Robert to succeed were more short term for the actual rebellion, where mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, Damon's legacy and that that is really more of a long term thing in terms of just, you know, strategically speaking, it's great to have a, lo- a leader that you're going to follow to hell and back. But uh, I mean, it's just that, uh, you know, that idea of Damon really be- uh, is strong, even though, I mean, you could say, well, sure, Damon II was an idiot. I mean, you know, that, you know, a dreamer, silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but, uh, you know, that didn't really stop the third Blackfire Rebellion from being really big. Mm-hmm. So you can see that Damon's legacy, the, the more positive parts of Damon really did have a longevity to them all their own, just as also Bittersteel had a longe- uh, was able to provide some legitimacy since they had an organization in Essos to help kind of shepherd the uh, the, the exiles and the, the heirs the cause so it's it's just you know it's just interesting to see that just the the different advantages they had one was much more short-term which caused success and the other was much more long-term which caused persistence Mm. that's a great way of putting it i love it i'm not going to try to comment any more on that that's a perfect way to end this this discussion this has been great guys thank you so much for coming on to talk about this um want to plug your stuff uh, sure. So, uh, you can find my writing at, uh, Race to the Iron Throne at WordPress.com or at Tumblr.com. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen Atwell. Uh, or you can also find me, uh, on Patreon, uh, slash Stephen Atwell. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you can find me at, uh, Wars of ASOIF, um, at Tumblr. Uh, you can find me at, uh, Twitter, JM underscore Slaw. That's uh, something like a lawyer because that's my name, and uh, that's just how, how that is. Um, I will. Uh, I do not have a Patreon, but I can plug Stephen's Patreon. Uh, 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 James, do you have a, do you have a Patreon as well? Uh, no. Um, okay. Okay. Then I will just. I, I, I was just gonna make it make just making sure. I figured it, it would be kind of rude if I if you both had Patreons and I only plugged one <laughs> and not the other. No. Um. I got a Facebook. I got a Facebook page for my comics, Olympian Comics. Uh, go on Facebook and look for Olympian Comics. You can find a bunch of free comics I did. And uh, maybe in the future I'll release this little fan comic I did the, of with a great artist, um, which is Game of Thrones, but we'll see. Um, so thank you guys for coming on. Um, when we can't have Comic-Con or Ice and Fire Con, we have it in here in podcast world. So thank you, everyone. See you next week. Bye-bye. Have a good one.